Hi, David Mendes here with a new episode of Papa PhD. Today I'm bringing you another treasure from the vault. My season one conversation with Drew Slack about his path from a PhD in pharmacology to his current career in the medical regulatory domain. This is a special episode to me because of Drew's generosity in sharing his journey and his know-how and because it was the first one where I allowed myself to go into uncharted territories with my guest. I hope you'll enjoy it too. Happy listening! What happens when you have all your ducks lined up and the universe throws you a curveball? That's the moment when you have to regroup, reflect deeply on what you want the new path that is opening up to you to look like, and trace a game plan that will allow you to come out winning. Drew Slack was well on his way towards a life in the professoriate when his curveball arrived. In today's episode, we'll learn about the principles, the resources and the values that were key in building the career he has carved out for himself today. Postdoctoral work is just is the most uh, physically and emotionally challenging, uh, I think, environment. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's where most people really find themselves uh, the most explicitly tested. You know, it's, it's, it's a real walk of faith uh, to, uh, to to do that. So I, I say that's that's one thing is that, that you really learn to trust and rely on yourself. Uh, and uh, without question, that's where that's where you develop your your strongest uh, work ethic and, and determination. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. So this week, we're talking with Drew Slack. Drew is an experienced medical affairs director with accomplished career history in the biotechnology and health regulatory sectors. He's skilled in oncology, molecular biology, biotechnology, management, and clinical research, and has postdoctoral experience in translational and clinical oncology research with a PhD focused in molecular pharmacology and oncology from McGill University. Welcome to Papa PhD, Drew. Thanks, David. I'm really pleased that you invited me to take part. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, starting at your PhD, and, uh, and um, what path you followed from your PhD to what you do today. Sure, sure. So I kind of acquired a fascination for, uh, for molecular biology and research uh, in the course of doing an honors project uh, at, during my undergrad at Queen's University. I went from there to um, uh, Department of Molecular Pharmacology at McGill, uh, where um, I, I worked uh, in uh, oncogenic signaling and um, uh, in uh, molecular biology, uh, with a with a focus in, in molecular pharmacology and developing clinical or, or developing um, lead small lead compounds, small molecule lead compounds. Uh, and it was a yeah, very uh, very high energy uh, group uh, in our in that PhD setting. Um, a large lab, very, very busy and collaborative lab, and a uh, very, very obstructive uh, PhD experience, not without uh, a lot of uh, challenges, 
but uh, a very um, a remarkable learning environment. And uh, I think set me up well for uh, uh, postdoctoral uh, work that I did subsequently at Baylor College of Medicine. So I went on there to, uh, to do my postdoctoral work in Houston uh, with a, um, a Baylor-affiliated uh, clinical research lab at uh, Texas Children's Cancer Center. And uh, did uh, several years of postdoctoral experience uh, there uh, before kind of uh, figuring out what uh, what my next move was. Mm-hmm. And what were the following steps after your postdoc? So I think like a lot of scientists who end up raising families and confronting some of the challenges of, of progressing a career in uh, in research, I kind of uh, kind of hit that point uh, where where I started to think about work-life balance and what were the rewards for me personally versus the rewards that I could offer to to my family. And uh, it started me thinking a little bit about alternative uh, pathways. At the same time, uh, an award mechanism that I was seeking uh, via the NIH, um, I had, uh, had kind of come to a close. And it really was sort of a, the end of a chapter for me in a sense in that uh, the the most viable pathway that I could have taken to independence as a, as a principal investigator had sort of been very abruptly shut down for me. I kind of leaned on a, on a network of uh, uh, PhD and postdoc colleagues and uh, ended up settling on um, returning home to be closer to family. That's Ottawa for me. And uh, that led me to uh, a career in, uh, in regulatory. And uh, yeah, so that uh, after kind of a, you know, a long roundabout search, I decided that that was maybe the best place uh, for me in, in terms of leveraging my skills and uh, doing the best I could to look after my son uh, was uh, was in uh, in regulatory. Okay, so in the CRO? Uh, no, in uh, actually working for Health Canada initially uh, in uh, in a post post market surveillance unit in a in a marketed health products pharmacovigilance uh, unit. And then later on in uh, pre-market uh, clinical drug review capacity. Mm-hmm. This this is already interesting because I I surmise that from what you're saying that you did well in during your PhD. So you said it was high energy, but you you, you seem to have had you know good results and, and good a good outcome, which drove you towards your postdoc. Yeah, I I, I never doubted that uh you know in the, in those early days that I wanted uh, to to be a PI and that I wanted to have my own lab. Um, Absolutely um, uh, research-driven uh, and uh, you know, absolutely focused on, on discovery and uh, saw that the you know, academic laboratory setting was the only one for me uh, in the early going. And that, you know, that, that kind of outlook uh, really uh, drove me, to be honest, without thinking a great deal about it in the postdoctoral realm. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's later on as, uh, you know, as other priorities start to take hold that uh, you start to you start to really question more, right? And I think for me that the real stimulus was family. Yeah, I think it's reality for for a lot of people out there. You get to to that age, you you find a partner, and and you start uh, you start setting up a family, and then you know priorities change, and um, you know your your ease of. Uh, uh, the the ease of moving to another country to do another postdoc is not the same. So I, I guess that that's probably something that that uh, that weighed in there for you. But when this NIH uh, grant or or, or a fellowship, I, I don't know exactly what the term is, didn't come through. Can you tell us a little bit about 
how that affected you? Did you already have your your son at that time? I did. Yeah, he was very young at that time, and uh, yeah, I was uh, you know in that incredibly busy phase of uh, of postdoctoral training where you're um, you're supervising uh, other uh, clinical fellows in some cases, uh, supervising activities of a technician. You're trying to publish your work. Uh, you're you're at the bench constantly and collecting time points for experiments uh, and uh, developing relationships and maintaining relationships with collaborators. Um, and uh, and then at this, you know, then you have this other full time job where you're trying to compete uh, aggressively for uh, for an award that will that will help you establish yourself as an independent uh, investigator. And uh, as you know, there's those types of uh, award mechanisms require usually several attempts. And uh, just prior to to my third attempt, with positive feedback uh, from from reviewers, uh, they abruptly announced that the the mechanism was cancelled. So so it's a it's a real uh, you know it's a real brush pack you know when uh, when you get news like that um, you know I can still remember where I was you know when that announcement was made. Uh, so, so then it's the question then becomes, so, you know, are you going to go back to private foundations? Are you going to uh, continue to rely on, on a mentor for, for funding and continue to, you know, operate uh, in, in that context of, of uh, postdoctoral salary constraints? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another guest uh, talked, talked to me about the K99. Is this the, the same I think in the same family. This one was called K zero one. K zero one. Okay, so it's in the same family of things. Yeah. So, it, so you say you remember when it happened. So it must have been quite a shock. What I'd like, what I'd like to share, or what I usually like to share with the audience is to give them tools to deal with these things that happen to anyone and to everyone. How did you deal with this? Do you remember first as a physical shock, almost right? You you, you must have felt a, a pit in your stomach. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> How are the next steps? Do, you know, because you said you already had your, your child. So now something must have changed inside you to say, okay, I'm done. Uh, I'm, dying, I'm done trying this path. Yeah. You know, I think we all have setbacks, right, in our careers. And, uh, you know, you, you, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't get through the first month in graduate school if, if you couldn't negotiate some of those. Uh, everybody's been there. Uh, I, I think it's the cumulative effect, right? And I think this was, like I said, for me, it almost felt like, you know, a, a close of a chapter. It's like, okay, this, uh, this, this lifestyle is, uh, is not working well for me and my family so much now. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the next step in, in the progression towards, uh, you know, towards a, 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 an improvement of, of that lifestyle was, was sort of pulled out from under me. And so I think that was, that was it really. It was just, uh, okay, now, now the universe may be trying to speak to me, uh, time to listen. And, uh, so, so it wasn't so much, uh, I, I need to, I need to walk away or, or give up on this path, but I, I need to, I need to take the blinders off and, and explore some, some alternatives, which frankly, I, I just hadn't, I just hadn't done, uh, Mm-hmm. So you were super busy with all the other stuff that you needed to do for for your day to day. Yeah, yeah, like uh, you know, like like so many people in that postdoc world, you know, there's uh, there's very little time to to contemplate, uh, you know, a, a completely different path when 23 of 24 hours uh, are committed to the, you know, to these goals. And so, how did you then establish a game plan for 
for what was coming next like which was because like you're saying you hadn't given it a minute of thought until that moment what were the next steps into building this transition into finding what your interests were maybe into reaching out to people that might uh, that might give you some pointers yeah it was uh, the the priority for me at that point then was was to go home and really uh, you know come back to canada and to, uh, to be closer to family and it, you know it's, it's sort of realizing again family you know sort of comes up in this that uh, i wanted i wanted a, a closer relationship with my son and and his extended family uh, and so you know that that kind of led me to to ottawa and uh, the you know the, it was sort of very evident early on that that was sort of the very the best uh, career path for me given given my skill set was as a scientist uh, as a life scientist in in the Ottawa area was was to was to look at regulatory but uh, you know fortunately I had I had friends from from graduate school days who had who had gone in that direction early on and so I had a, a sort of a uh, you know a built in a network of three or four people who had uh, moved into different areas of, uh, of regulatory that could uh, help inform me and help identify a, a place for me in, uh, in Health Canada. Excellent. So, so these these uh, friends, uh, so this this network uh, that was ready for you uh, at that point that came from grad school. Were there ways, particular ways, in which they helped you? Did they help you? Uh, actually, uh, find the position. Did they help you prepare to interview? You know, how how did that go? Because you've been on the academic track for all those years, and now you're going to have to go to this government body and uh, present yourself as a as a candidate uh, for for a position that you know now you know about, you've learned about it, but it's new to you in a way, and, and you're going to have a learning curve after that, right? How did you navigate that? How and how did these this these mentors or these, you know, these people that you, that you knew, how did they help you get ready for the, for that part? Yeah, I, I have to give a, a, you know, a tremendous credit to, you know, to my, uh, to my colleagues and those, those who mentored me, they, uh, they really um, uh, supported, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, phone discussions, coffee shop discussions, because that's, it's true. I knew nothing uh, about that world, you know, uh, that, that was so far removed from the, translational research environment that I had been been uh, inhabiting for so long uh, this was uh, and, and regulatory is also a you know a world that that's quite opaque for most people what goes on uh, inside that that uh, is uh, you know it's not uh, not the subject of lots of international conferences that people attend so so I really did I, I made uh, extensive use of, of my network and one friend in particular who was uh, uh, tremendously supportive of me, uh, coached me through the entire process up to the point of, uh, in fact, uh, um, creating an avenue for me to uh, to get an interview. So that uh, you know, and that's a critical first step in a, in in that in that context where a lot of the positions aren't. Um, you know, it's it's not evident how you would identify a position in that setting. Mm-hmm. And you know, you don't work in regulatory anymore, but. Uh... I've known people who were interested in in that domain. I know people who are in that domain, but but uh, not not in the governmental aspect of it. Do you have you know what what was what were the key things that that in this coaching that you had that helped you uh, land that position and that people out there listening that might be interested, what should they focus on to to you know show 
uh, an employer like that that they're the, the the right candidate for the position? Yeah, I think having um, you know having a real understanding uh, or developing a real understanding of uh, of how uh, of how regulatory environments work, um, really showcasing how um and i think this probably goes from for industry or other environments as well is is really uh show showcasing how uh your skills can can be transferable um and and particularly for the position in in mind uh how how your your skills like your your specialty uh skills uh make a good fit for the role So I think that's, you know, that, that's a really important element of, of uh, being competitive. Excellent. And did you, did you need to, or did you get to practice interviewing with, with the, your friends? Uh, you know, because any types of tools and tricks, any type of techniques or, or tactics to help someone, because interviews take care, you know, take, they take place in this very limited amount of time. I don't know, actually in government, maybe it, it's more complex, but You need to practice, right? How did you take care of, of that aspect of, okay, I, I saw myself I, as an academic. Now I'm going to present myself as the right person for this position. Yeah, definitely. There was a process of, uh, of rebranding that I had to go through. And uh, um, the good thing about government is, is that the, uh, the, the various steps, once you've, you know, once you've made a connection and identified a, you know, a, a, an opening, Uh, government tends to proceed along a very structured pathway, and that, that's that's good if you have an insider, someone who can uh, who can sort of teach you what uh, what those various steps are, because they, they you know compared to uh, the startup environment or, or uh, you know or other environments, government uh, their their uh, their hiring processes, their HR processes tend to be very um, systematic and and uh, follow very predictable procedures, but, uh, but that, you know, the, they are arcane nonetheless. And, uh, and they're not, uh, they're not well known to people outside of the organizations in many cases. So, uh, so I, again, I, I really, um, I, re I relied a great deal on, on this one colleague who, uh, you know, who, who was quite, uh, experienced in regulatory and, and knew a lot of the ins and outs and, and, and helped me foresee and, and understand, Uh, the process that I was going through. Excellent. So I imagine anyone out there that's interested should try to reach out maybe to someone who is in such a position and then have coffee with them and try to, you know, to, to, to learn the ropes a little bit before, before they, they go into that process. Yeah. And, and I think that that person can also maybe help you to identify the, you know, what your, what your trajectory is, you know, how happy will you be in a, in a regulatory environment? I knew for me that it, uh, I wasn't going to retire there, but it was a, it was a fantastic experience, uh, for me to spend, uh, five or six years, uh, in that environment and, um, you know, and, and sort of broaden out my skill set, uh, in, increase my, um, the breadth of my knowledge, you know, with respect to product life cycles and so on. So it, it, it allowed me to kind of um, develop my knowledge and experience beyond the research phase of drug development and, and become knowledgeable and, and experienced in areas of uh, pre-market approval, uh, post-market surveillance and, you know, and, and the, the entire, entire life cycle of, uh, of, of a drug. And that, that's turned out to be, um, 
a really, really valuable experience as I've moved on into other phases of my career. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And then we'll definitely talk about them a little bit later. But the, the thing that, that is super interesting is that you stayed close to, to your domain in a way, but in a totally different part of the, of the life cycle, like you were saying. That, that's it. And I was fortunate to be able to uh, find my way, not immediately, uh, because uh, regulatory environments aren't always all that agile. But if you're patient, um, you can move laterally uh, through an organization um, uh, relatively easily if you're dynamic and you're determined. And so uh, initially, I, I wasn't working in, in my in my preferred domain, but I eventually found my way uh, into um, uh, the oncology division at the Therapeutic Products uh, Directorate, where I was able to uh, work in um, in clinical drug review in precision oncology. So that that was a very very rewarding part of the of the career. Excellent. We're now uh, past university. We're, we're actually talking about your first job outside, but there's still some some things that I'd like to ask you about. You know, either you know grad school, but also postdoc. Uh, people don't see it, but I see a bicycle behind you. <laughs> uh, I, I'd like to talk about what your strategies and what your habits during grad school, postdoc were in terms of wellness, in terms of self-care. What elements did you include in your routine daily that that were not, you know, related to your research, but uh, allowed for you to have a balanced um, personal life that that had the research on one side, but then also these these have these um, uh, ha these habits and these uh, experiences that were not related to your research on the other hand. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question and one that everybody, you know, needs to needs to be asking themselves that, that you, know, you can't walk too far in this condo without tripping over a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would be I would be uh, be challenging for me to show you a view here that doesn't include one. Uh, that was sort of the first love was uh, was uh, racing bicycles uh, Criterium Road. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and followed with, uh, you know, every other kind of pursuit on two wheels. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's something that I've, I've relied, uh, relied on my whole, my whole life and career as a kind of an outlet, um, you know, a, a cling, cling to sanity kind of thing, uh, and, and racing in particular, you know, is a, uh, is a, is a way to kind of focus your energies, but, uh, uh, you know, an, an alternative way, I guess. And uh, yeah, keep, keeps you healthy, uh, both physically and mentally, I think, to have uh, a pursuit, uh, you know, an athletic pursuit, especially but for other people it could be music. Uh, but I think it's, it's important to find some other passion, you know, the balance, work, family and And something that's just for you. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that if you're if you're racing, you're competing. Yeah, not, not today, but certainly uh, up until uh, recently, yeah. So I imagine there's also a community that comes with that, right? Yeah, there is. And, and it's remarkable the number of scientists that you meet uh, uh, riding bicycles. Uh, it, there seems to almost be a bit of a phenotype, um, <laughs> but I've, uh, I've, I've run across that. <laughs> so many colleagues, uh, you know, both past and present, uh, uh, seem, to, uh, seem to, to have a real passion for, uh, for bicycles and for racing them. And so it's a yeah it's it's a it's a remarkable opening uh, even to this day uh, when uh, when you meet people because uh, yeah it it just you know when you talk to somebody and 
and they realize you speak that other language, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great way to kind of, uh, to bond with people and find a, uh, to build collaboration, find common cause. Mm -hmm. You know, have you met people that you ended up collaborating with professionally uh, on the, on the bike trail? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, while you were in grad school, did you have any other uh, extracurricular activities or groups you were part of or activities you developed? Um, you know, bikes were, were, were a big part of it. Yeah. If you were racing, you probably put a lot of time into it, right? That, that's it. There, there, it didn't, it didn't leave much, uh, you know, afterwards in, in those days, but, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was really for me, a big, big passion. Excellent. And, uh, I imagine, do you still keep friends from back then, the, from the, that arena? Uh, oh yeah. Some of my best friends today, uh, are, are the friends that I meet, uh, at the trailhead and, uh, Uh, those are those have been people from WADA. Uh, those have been people from grad school days. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a bond that kind of uh, never never goes away, right? When you're when you're uh, competing and racing and, and enjoying outdoors together, it's a uh, yeah, it's a sort of a special link. This is great. I saw the bike behind you, and and I had to ask this because I think it's one of the one of the very important things. Uh, When you when you're in grad school and and when you're you you know going after the, your your PhD and it gets uh, it, it gets challenging at times and uh, you have to work like X number of days nonstop because you have this experiment uh, that that needs to work well and and be tuned and be uh, tuned etc. Super important to have this this uh, other life where you have another group of people uh, where you can even in your case you know because you're racing you you can kind of also clear your mind during during this activity for other people it could be meditation but uh anyway again i just saw the bike there and i thought th this is important to talk about yeah i think there's an ele other element there too you know as, as much as i've i've met people in my own professional domain uh on on bicycles uh you know you also obviously meet people who do other things engineers and uh and i've had as many conversations with uh with peers in life sciences as i have with with peers in in other domains and uh, uh you know time on the bicycle is you know so you're often uh, especially on the road that many many hours spent together and uh you know you you solve problems talking to people with different experiences and points of view too it gets you away from uh, your, your professional peer group a little bit sometimes too, you know, it, it helps you build connections, but it also, sometimes it helps you to connect with people in other areas professionally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk, talk with, uh, with lawyers, as I say, engineers, uh, other people who have an interest in the sport. And, uh, I, I believe I've solved problems, uh, in that way as well by, by having, uh, by having discussions in that setting where people, Are, you know, are thinking creatively and are doing something that they love and, uh, and you know, where, where the conversation flows very, flows very freely. That's super interesting. And uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think I know anyone that, that really did like a kind of a competition sport, uh, not during, during grad school for sure. And, and I, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of, you, know, you can, you bond with people in a different way, but the fact that you're still meeting people and that, that you still have conversations that actually, help you or, or, or bring solutions to that's super, super interesting. It's a lifelong sport, right? Uh, you know, uh, goes to, you know, so there are some other sports that, uh, 
you know, don't not don't lend themselves well to, uh, you know, to participation when you're in your uh, in your late 40s. <laughs> exactly. Excellent. Drew, uh, we're going to take a little break. Uh, so we, we've covered the, the, the part the you know, grad school and, uh, and, and postdoc and your first jump into something else, <laughs> which was regulatory. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about what came after. And, uh, we'll talk also about what skills that come from, from your PhD and your postdoc you still use today. Before going on with the interview, I want to thank you for listening to the show. If you like an episode and feel that it's helped you or inspired you in any way, share it with your friends. Maybe it will inspire them too. Mental health is, is really a big issue now. And uh, I think one of the things is that if people do one physical activity regularly, it's, it, can, like, it can fix a, a lot of things in their, in their, uh, in their personal... Uh, in the, well, mental health is one of them, but physical, also just being fit, right? It, it, it helps. For, for sure. I, I mean, I, I, d I couldn't imagine doing uh, what I do and being sedentary. It's just, uh, it's, uh, and, and in fact, uh, this was, uh, you know, my, my, my days as a, as a racing cyclist, you know, as a, especially as a, as a junior, when I was competing a lot, um, it actually helped to shape my one of my career interests and 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 open the door for uh, my um, um, my position at WADA. You know, having having had a a background as a you know as as a I won't say elite athlete because I was never that, but having a background as a competitive athlete and having you know and sport being clearly a a value um, coupled with my my background in pharmacology uh, opened the door to position at WADA. So, you know, it was a, a, a combination obviously of networking and, uh, transferable skills and experience, but, uh, but, you know, being obviously committed lifelong to, to a sport to one, uh, yeah. was, was a, was a, uh, you know, a key, I think to, to, um, to competing for that position. Excellent. It's, it's funny how, things you know that you wouldn't put on your cv per se but then end up having an effect on 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 being hired or not for a specific position it's crazy yeah yeah every organization has their own kind of cultural dynamic right and uh, uh i think that's one of the key things you have to ascertain uh, early on if you've decided you want a position is uh, uh you know what's 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 the prevalent attitude in that culture and uh you know is it is it is it something that you get is it something you understand is it something that you can appeal to and uh is a you know ultimately hopefully is it is it authentic excellent uh, for like for some people that i that i've interviewed it's been they 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 wrote a blog on the on something like this person she she now gives financial advice to to phd's in the states because it's particular uh, with all the stipends and the taxes and uh, and she she started that by writing a blog on her experience dealing with that and that, that now became her main her main thing uh, uh but but i've known people like i was uh, like uh, when i was in this company doing medical writing they were hired because oh you you've edited you've been an editor on this uh, e magazine for sure like they they did all the the, the tests that that they do for writing etc but 
once she passed those, the fact that she had that experience totally helped her being hired. And uh, I think it's funny because the, the, this person uh, from personal finance, she calls it a, a side hustle. Advantage. Well, if you love something enough when you're doing it right now, but if you love something enough to do it for free, uh, nobody can say that you're not passionate about it. You know, you're willing to put your own time and resources to, to spend your, you know, you choose to do that on weekends or evenings. Uh, it's pretty hard for someone to say that, uh, that you're not invested, right? That's true. That's totally true. All right. So now, so you were in Ottawa for five, six years, and then you decided, okay, I'm going to move on to something else, right? Yeah, at that, at that point, my son was uh, getting a little bit older. And, uh, you know, regulatory, can, it can feel a little bit like running in quicksand, you know, after the, uh, the hustle of, uh, of postdoc life. And uh, I was really ready to, to move on to uh, more of an outward-facing role. Um, I, was, uh, I was, especially I was eager to uh, understand more about, you know, to expand my, my understanding of, of, of this whole uh, world of clinical oncology and, uh, you know, in, on the inside and in, in regulatory environments, you, except for some expert advisory panels and, uh, you know, a few pre-submission meetings, uh, you don't really get the occasion to uh, engage with clinicians and certainly not with patients. And I think that's changing now, but uh, certainly in those days, you know, I felt like this, this was what I really wanted to do um, was, was I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, to be in a more outward facing role and, and, and to, to talk to people and, and who, who were in clinical practice and, uh, you know, and, and do something that was, that was a, a little bit more, uh, more outward facing, more dynamic. Uh, and at, at that time, actually, uh, this uh, this remarkable role uh, came up, and again, be a, a, a friend in uh, in my uh, in my network from graduate school days with uh, World Anti Doping Agency. So, you know, in some ways, a major right turn in a career that had otherwise focused exclusively on oncogenic signaling and uh, um, you know and um, disease pathophysiology and and uh, and, and you know, very 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 much focused on a on a on, uh, on cancer biology, I, uh, I thought let's 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 take a chance. This is a this is a huge risk, but uh, uh, it's a fascinating, maybe once in a lifetime opportunity to go work for an international agency. Uh, their, I mean, their raison d'être was ultimately linked to the sport that I love, which is cycling. Okay, and uh, and I thought, well, I've always you know I've always valued uh, I've always valued fair play in sport. And this is a great chance for me to um, engage uh, with professionals in the world of sports, specifically uh, uh, professionals in various areas of uh, um, specialty practice, uh, lend some of my own experience in, in molecular pharmacology, and, uh, and, and hopefully um, you know, participate in uh, uh, improving fair play in sport. Excellent. So were you hired? Was it kind of, were you kind of... Because you said you had a contact, were you kind of headhunted, or did you still have to also, you know, show that you were the the right candidate for the position? Yeah, de definitely, a door was open and a contact made with the director. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, there were there were a hundred or hundred fifty other candidates who whose CVs were were considered for the role, and uh, yeah, multiple multiple interviews. Uh, I think by that time, though, I you know I I had really evolved 
uh, and hone my my skills with interviewing. And as you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, had really um, uh, really done a lot more reading and uh, felt at this point, you know, in my in my early forties, uh, much more on top of my game and much more professional in terms of how I uh, researched and sought out uh, um, uh, positions and. Uh, yeah, and very much actively uh, used uh, simulated interviews, uh, and again had a had a, a mentor, if you will, or a peer who uh, who was so completely on my side, uh, desperately wanted me to have this position, <laughs> almost as if it was for himself, you know. Wow. So we we did many mock interviews, uh, and uh, we we both read, and uh, I. I uh, I'm I'm always in his debt for uh, for that for role playing with me and um, working together from information we gathered uh, to, um, to to really help me prepare for uh, for that opportunity. Excellent. Uh, it's it's interesting and it's super. I'm super happy that you're mentioning role playing and uh, and um, mock interviews because you know I think especially because here we're talking you were you were working for five, six years in, in government, you know, you, you're, like you say, your child has grown up, you're going into this process, you know, already with another mindset uh, and, and more, more security of your capacities and of your capacity to tell your story and to be compelling. But for people who are just uh, now, you know, finishing their PhD and thinking, now I'm going to go interview in the job market, role-playing and, and mock interviewing is key, I would say. Uh, because once you have that that um, that main story, that once you know it by heart, and, and you can you can do a, almost an, an elevator pitch on on why you're the best candidate, then you can address the particular interests of the person who's going to be interviewing you. Uh, and uh, after having already created a good image of yourself, because you've practiced it. Yeah, that that confidence going in is so important, right? Um, if you don't, if you don't possess that, if you feel like you're on the limits of your personal comfort, you're not going to be fluid. You're not going to, uh, you're not going to smile. You're not going to present yourself in a way that's natural and authentic. So I, you know, I think it's as important, uh, you know, to, to secure the position, um, you know, you, you have to represent yourself professionally well, but you have to represent yourself well personally as well. And that's, uh, I think that all of those things are tied together by having uh, that that confidence that that uh, uh, that you know the the organization's mission and values. Uh, you've you've read every document that's publicly available. Uh, you know you you've you've really taken every step you can to educate yourself about the position. And uh, you know even at interviewing candidates myself, uh, I'm still amazed with the proliferation of information uh, that didn't exist. I won't speak for you, but when, when I was young in the, uh, and sort of finding my way career-wise in a pre-internet world, uh, you know, it was, it was, it required a tremendous amount of research, but uh, you can sit at home uh, and understand uh, an awful lot about an organization uh, in a morning of browsing. Uh, so if you haven't, if you haven't done that, if you don't, if you haven't completed your due diligence in that regard, uh, then you're not ready. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Again, great advice. Now, maybe we can fa fast forward and, and you can kind of tell from from uh, from that organization uh, that, that you just mentioned. Uh, World Anti-Doping Agency. World Anti-Doping Agency, yeah. You know, what was your path from there to today? 
Yeah. So uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency was a was a fantastic opportunity and a great opportunity to engage uh, with uh, medical professionals in the world of sport. Uh, and uh, you know, I loved I loved every minute of it. International organization. Uh, the um, uh, you're engaged with people. You're as likely to be engaged with someone from. Singapore or Finland, as you are uh, to be engaged with with someone from Canada, so the the uh, you know the the opportunities to expand professional network uh, geographically as well as in terms of um, understanding how other different um, people outside of for me outside of oncology worked, um, you know, in the, in our area, which was focused on therapeutic use exemption. Uh, you are um, you're, you're working with people who practice in uh, metabolic disease, rheumatology, orthopedics, endocrinology. You name it. Um, so it was a it was a great opportunity, and I and uh, and and I loved uh, I loved the experience that it that it brought me in terms of expanding my world outside of of, of oncology. Uh, but at a certain point, again, it was sort of the, it was apparent that uh, to me that uh, there was there wasn't anywhere for me to go. Uh, Career-wise, uh, without without moving into into another area, so uh, so again uh, through uh, through network uh, this opportunity uh, that I've identified most recently with uh, Exactus Innovation as their director of Med Affairs uh, opened up, and uh, this this was again to, took me back into my my first uh, and main love in, in precision oncology uh, in a in a more clinician and patient focused setting. Which is what you wanted? Yeah, in, in some ways, it was it was sort of what I was, you know, what I had always been been seeking, um, and uh, easily the most challenging role I've ever held. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, this is a um, a very very exciting uh, opportunity and uh, um, yeah, disruptive and uh, uh, tremendous tremendous opportunity to kind of expand my horizons uh, professionally and uh, add to my. To my experience and knowledge, yeah. Can you can you tell the listeners a little bit of, uh, about what you do in your position? Yeah, uh, the organization is composed of a team of uh, clinical and translational research professionals, and uh, uh, it's a small organization. We're about twenty, with another twenty or so who are embedded uh, in our uh, um, network sites uh, at uh, cancer care centers across Canada. But the uh, the team is. Uh, 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 basically supports and coordinates the activity of the uh, stakeholders from uh, from those 13 sites across across Canada consent solid tumor patients uh, to a comprehensive longitudinal registry uh, that's called personalized my therapy so when, once the uh, patients are consented to that registry then their their clinical and molecular data all the relevant clinical and molecular data are archived in the registry and they are then um, uh, candidates uh, for uh, consent to uh, to clinical trials. Um, they're um, well. The, the organization, part of the organization's role, then is is to uh, we work with an overlapping network of hospital laboratories, and uh, so either at the time of consent or at a point in the disease trajectory where a patient's eligible for a trial, biopsy tissue or resected tissue. Uh, can be genetically profiled using a validated uh, next-gen sequencing platform that's run in these laboratories. So the so the a somatic mutation profile can be generated for those patients, and then 
they can be potentially matched uh, to trials that are running in the network. Wow, excellent. So it really looks like all these things that you've done, you know, from your postdoc to today, you make use of them in your current job. It, it's uh, it's funny how uh, how our uh, the twists and turns uh, of our uh, career paths uh, so often you know take us to uh, to these to these kinds of roles where where there's a kind of convergence. Yeah, I I do see that in the you know the medical affairs uh, part of the work that I did in uh, uh, sort of as the you know expert group ringleader and coordinator at WADA. Uh, you know the um, the clinical drug review activities and and the, that sort of um, um, you know, product life cycle overview part of, of working in regulatory, and then uh, you know the clinical research activities uh, that uh, that I was engaged in uh, in, in Houston at uh, at Baylor. You know, all three of those components I, I call on. You know, the experience and knowledge from uh, from all those different earlier phases of my career. That's that's excellent. And one thing I'd like you to to try and and tell the listeners is. Because coming out of, of the PhD, one of the things people may feel is, if I don't stay uh, in academia, I, I will have wasted this time. And I'm pretty sure that if I ask you, are, are there skills, are, are there um, uh, abilities, are there uh, habits that you gained in grad school and, 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 in, and in your postdoc that you still use today, that translate to today? I, I think it's an unequivocal yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, you know, I, I would say that, you know, this is the most challenging role I've ever had. Uh, but postdoctoral work is just, it's the most uh, physically and emotionally challenging, uh, I think, environment. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's where most people really find themselves the uh, most explicitly tested. You know, it's, it's, it's a real walk of faith uh, to, uh, to, to do that. So I, I say that's, that's one thing is that, that you really learn to trust and rely on yourself. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, without question, that's where, that's where you develop your, your strongest, uh, work ethic and, and determination. I would say in terms of other transferable skills that maybe don't necessarily relate to a specific area of research, but, uh, for me taking every opportunity to collaborate and never leaving value on the table. Those would be two lessons I take away from my research experience that I use daily. And it's extremely relevant to medical affairs and, and especially in an environment where you're in a startup, where you're, you're trying to look for opportunities for partnership and where you have to be really relentless where you look for opportunities and never give up. So, you know, I think my PhD mentor was valuable in that sense in, in saying, you know, never let good work sit on the bench. There's always an opportunity to see work through and be that closer. And I think that's what's incredibly valuable to any organization is, is someone who's able to start something and finish it. The pressure of publishing, I think, naturally obliges academics to develop that skill set. And, and that, that's what I've, I find is, has been uh, the thing I think that I, that I have brought to a professional positions outside of academia that, that people have found valuable. Mm -hmm. I, and I agree with you. This, this is something that, that is valuable to any employer, I'd say, and especially any employer that is looking to hire you for a position of responsibility. The, the point that, that I think uh, you're touching and that's very important is once you, you come out either with your PhD or, or, or of a postdoc, you're a highly qualified 
and, and let's not talk about specialized because you specialize in something that maybe is not going to interest the, the employer. But tell me if you agree, but highly qualified uh, worker uh, and you have tools that, that make you um, fit to, to work in, in highly stressful work environments and deal with it uh, with, with a certain ease. But also, you're not afraid to take on long-winded projects and make sure that that you hit your your deadlines and that you uh, that you deliver good work at at the end. Yeah, absolutely. I I think you know that that capacity to uh, to calculate and and to to actually take risks is uh, you know is is a skill that that uh, every every good academic researcher. Uh, develops uh, almost to the point of intuition, right? And, and I, I do think that that's amongst many many of the skills that that you develop in uh, uh, in, in a research setting. That uh, self reliance, uh, that confidence uh, that uh, that you inevitably have to develop in uh, in your own hypothesis, in the quality of your own work. Uh, you're you know you're really the captain of your own ship. Uh, And uh, I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for it. You know, when you grow into professional environments, uh, you see that you, in, in some in some of those regards, you know, uh, uh, autonomy, self-sufficiency, uh, um, professional engagement, um, you know, all, all of these things, I think, help PhDs stand above uh, their competitors. Yeah. One thing that what you just said made me think about is that, uh, and I think this didn't happen with you because you got a government job in which salary is probably, there's probably standards of, you know, you got into this position which had a set salary for it. But one of the things that uh, people coming out, let's say of a PhD may deal with is doubt about the, the value of their time and how much, you know, how much they can expect to earn in their, in their first job coming out of the PhD. Um, So uh, this is another aspect, you know, people may not value or may not give themselves enough credit in terms of uh, what abilities they come out with, but they can even underestimate how much they can be worth to a potential employer. And I imagine some universities may already have workshops or uh, systems to help people do, the, do, do this transition. I remember I didn't. And when, when I was asked, how much do you want to earn? I really didn't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, it's one of the many professional um, uh, skills that, that, uh, that we don't acquire in, in those settings, right, is, is valuing yourself. Uh, and uh, I, I know I undersold myself uh, in the early part of my career um, because you become quite naturally conditioned to a subsistence lifestyle. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would certainly, you know, to anybody who's, who's looking to kind of um, land that first job outside of a, of an academic setting, um, you know, de definitely that's a, that's a key area of research is, is, you know, as hard as it can be sometimes uh, investigate what are, uh, what are reasonable salary expectations. Mm -hmm. There's online uh, resources now. There's uh, uh, things like Glassdoor is one of them. It's a website where you can, you can kind of get an idea, an x-ray, uh, so to say. Also, uh, one thing that, that, I, that uh, I, I think is a good way to go is if, you, if you're able, if you're looking at an organization where you want to work uh, and you're able to get in touch with someone who works there or who has worked there, uh, go and have coffee with that person and then they'll be 
happy to help you and to to, uh, to answer your questions. I, I can count on one hand the the number of people that I have you know uh, sent a thoughtful, intelligent, respectful email to, and they didn't respond to me. You know, when it's an an authentic, sincere request for help or advice. And I I think that's, you know, that's something that everybody needs to leverage more. I wish I had done it when I, when I was younger, you know? Yeah. Same here. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's such a valuable tool and it's, and, and people just don't, don't use it enough. And uh, yeah, you can have insight into an organization well beyond, you know, the, the cursory uh, social media website scan, right. It's it's so often the case that, uh, you know, there's somebody who's more than happy as you say, to, to, to grab a coffee and, uh, and to give you the inside scoop. Excellent. Uh, Drew, uh, I'm almost getting to my final question, but I just wanted to note something and, and tell me if I heard right. But one of the things that I find really interesting uh, about your whole path is that I, your network, and especially the network that you, that you had or that grew out of your grad school, echoed throughout uh, the different pivots that you did uh, professionally. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, I I, uh, honestly can't think of um, an opportunity that I took uh, or a position I held that I didn't in some way owe to uh, someone uh, in my in my network, personal or professional. Um, And and uh, yeah, the, the, the friendships that you build in graduate school days, I think, are the ones well, at least for me personally, the ones that, that still resonate most strongly. Uh, and, uh, and those are, you know, yeah, I, I, I said, I, I, I really, I have to trace every opportunity, even some of the ones that we didn't speak about, you know, uh, 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 some uh, part-time teaching, uh, a period in my life when I was consulting. Uh, all of those have, uh, in my case anyways, have sprung from uh, strong relationships uh, and strong interpersonal relationships with people, and uh, you know, I think um, engaging with people in a way that is um, respectful, uh, where you demonstrate that you have a high level of integrity, uh, and that you're you know are interested in um, giving as much as receiving help and advice. Can't, can't stress enough, you know, how important it is. Uh, you know, in order to, uh, you know, to, to help uh, push your, propel your career along. Mm-hmm. So this is another uh, advantage of taking part in, in student life when you're in grad school, for sure. Yeah, 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 I think so. Take every opportunity, go to, go to every seminar. Um, I, I think one, one really good point of advice I had, uh, again, I wish I had, had done more of it earlier on, was uh, somehow find a way to devote an appropriate amount of time every week, whether it's two hours or four hours or whatever you can spare uh, to yourself. And, and, you know, when I say yourself, it's to, you know, your own, whether, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, investigating alternative paths, uh, going, going to see something that uh, a seminar that's not explicitly related to your work uh, keeping in touch with professional colleagues in different fields, um, scanning the horizon in whatever way. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, that's really, really good advice. Um, it's, uh, commit, uh, a portion of your time to you and your own personal and professional development. Cause it's so easy, 
you know, when you're working uh, in a, you know, in a demanding job, whether it's postdoc or whether you're at the, at a director or VP level, you can easily have your ambitions consumed by the organization you work for. That's, that's super, super uh, important advice. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I can't agree more. But uh, so now, Drew, I, I'm going to ask my last question. And uh, I don't know how old your son is, but I, I'd like you to think of, you know, students, either people who are in grad school or are considering grad school, who are just uh, finishing or who have just graduated. Um, and to think, uh, you know, maybe put yourself in, in, in their shoes today uh, because times have changed, right? But thinking, you know, considering your experience, your path, uh, and, uh, you know, all, all that you've learned uh, ever since you, you finished your PhD, um, what two or three pieces of advice can you give them to, to help them prepare their transition? You've talked already about taking two hours a, a week to look into the horizon. I think that's very, very important. But do you have a couple more of pieces of advice for them to, to be successful in their transition, be it into their academic career, but also in their, into their non-academic career, if that's the path they're following? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, following up on, on what, we, what we discussed earlier, I, you know, I think uh, be absolutely fearless in, uh, in your information gathering. Um, don't, don't settle, uh, you know, regardless of where you are, whether, you, you know, my son's 15 and I'm encouraging him to do this. Uh, in fact, we're, we're joining uh, uh, a couple uh, this weekend uh, so that he can find out uh, what, what it's like to be uh, an, an electrical engineer. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, be, be fearless and be, uh, and be determined in, uh, in, in chatting with people and seeking out opportunities for mentorship, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, knowledge gathering uh, as early and as often as time permits. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've always, I always found people so, so happy and eager to help. I think as scientists, especially, you know, if to, coming back to my own personal uh, or our personal sort of domain, uh, you know, because we're, we're a bit, uh, uh, you know, we're always held to account and, and we're never far away from, uh, from, from some episode of failure, right? And, uh, and yeah. uh, as researchers, uh, we, we have a kind of a, a humility uh, that makes us want to help people. But I found it in other domains too. So uh, yeah, I would, I would say le leverage, uh, you know, every, every opportunity possible and, and don't just uh, decide uh, that uh, you're, you're going to settle on, on one narrow area of, uh, of study or research or career path, uh, you know, I think uh, you don't know what you don't know. I would have maybe cast a wider net, you know, uh, earlier on in my career, uh, just, just to have a, a better context so that, you know, you don't get to where I was, um, you know, several years into a postdoctoral fellowship and then and only then contemplating what, What other things could I do with this uh, with this training and education? Excellent, Drew. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for for having been on the show. Um, what do you have? Some links that you'd like to share with with uh, the listeners if they either want to reach out to you or uh, to your organization to to uh, you know to learn about what uh, what you do. 
It, absolutely, I'd be uh, I'd be very pleased to uh, if anyone's interested in uh, in the initiative and what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, it's a uh, uh, easy to remember. It's uh, exactus e x a c t i s dot c a exactus dot c a. Uh, you can learn a little bit about our uh, our initiative and uh, and what we're trying to accomplish uh, further. Uh, um, our mission to improve access to precision oncology uh, clinical trials for Canadian cancer patients. Um, yeah, that's 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 the main thing. Uh, would uh, for people to learn a bit more a bit about the initiative and uh, um, and uh, I would encourage anyone to get in touch with me if uh, if they'd like to uh, to know more. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna put uh, the the website link and your LinkedIn uh, on on the show notes. So I guess anyone uh, listening can can reach out to do that way. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Pleasure was mine. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Drew Slack. If you're new to the show, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thanks for being a fan. Independently of which one you are, I'd really love to get to know you better. So if you have a minute, go to papaphd.com forward slash audience and please fill in the audience survey I have there for you. If you want to support the show, simply go to papaphd.com forward slash support and find which way is the best for you to help me produce this show and bring you new guests week after week. Your support will help me cover the cost of hosting, equipment and other recurring expenses needed to bring you a high quality show week after week. Thank you for listening. I am David Mendes and this is the Papa PhD Podcast.